Thomas uh, for leading us in worship this morning. It's great, isn't it, just to, to come together and to praise God together. And, and really important too that as those who've perhaps been blessed by God, just to take an opportunity to acknowledge his goodness to us and then to be able to give back in a real practical way like this. And so grateful to Linda for all that she does in representing region and working way beyond her job description many, many times and hours and doing so much uh, for people in need around North Newcastle and beyond. There should be um, an outline on your seat if you want to make use of that. Everything we're looking at this morning, all the key points and verses will be on that, but they'll also be up on the screen. So you can use them if, if they're helpful for you or you can just ignore them, that's fine. A few years ago, we went through a phase as a family, and, and I'm blaming it on my, the fact that my kids were teenagers at that point, of watching an American TV program called Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Basically what happens is that they come in and they help a family who has a terrible home, it's probably kind of falling to pieces, it's falling down, and maybe the people in the home are caring for a larger family than normal, or perhaps there's someone in the family who's disabled and really ill, and they, the facilities they've got just aren't suitable for them. And some of the homes that they live in are just awful, just really, really terrible. But then along comes the TV show, and they don't just give the house a makeover, they send the family off to Disney World for a, a week and then they completely demolish the house and they build them a whole brand new house. It's a complete new house. And they have this brand new house and some e examples of this are before and after of what they do. It's amazing and it's really great uh, fun and if it's still probably on some of the TV channels, worth a watch, really moving, just seeing how the lives have changed. There is a British edition but it's never as good because they don't have the budget, they don't knock houses down, it's always a bit kind of plan B, not quite on the level of this. But there was another, or maybe it still is, another sister program to this called, it's just called Extreme Makeover, okay, not Extreme Makeover Home Edition, just Extreme Makeover, which we don't normally watch, although I do admit to watching it maybe once or twice. And in Extreme Makeover, instead of working with a house, they work with a person, a person who doesn't really like the way that they look. And so they have an Extreme Makeover, usually involving significant plastic surgery. And as a result, they look significantly different afterwards. Here's one example for you, and then uh, here's another example for you. So I might just book myself in, see if I can do anything about this kind of nose that I have. But, but here's the problem. They're still the same person underneath, despite all that significant and often quite brutal plastic surgery they have to go through and so on. They still look, they're still the same person underneath, despite the, the cosmetic, the external makeover, it's still the same person underneath. I think we've probably seen enough of that picture, Mark. That's just depressing all the guys whose chins are like that. <laughs> the two shows are very, very similar in one sense, but the end results are very different. One is an extreme makeover, an exterior makeover, whilst the other is a complete interior and a complete rebuild from, from ground up. Now, I'm not trying to justify watching those TV shows that we've sometimes watched in our house, but the comparison between those shows teaches us a really significant, in fact, a massive biblical uh, lesson. Some people will only give themselves an external spiritual makeover so that they look a little bit different on the outside perhaps by their behavior. Their behavior starts to look a little bit Christian and so on because they're coming to church, etc. But they've never really changed on the inside. Whilst other people ask God to give them a complete makeover, a complete rebuild from the ground up, and they become a brand new person forever. They probably don't look any different physically, or probably won't at all, but actually they're a completely brand new person from the inside out. But today we're looking at uh, a portion of the Bible in Hebrews, we're working our way through the book of Hebrews together. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6 
to chapter 4, verse 2. And I've given the title today, uh, Am I Really a Christian? Am I Really a Christian? And it's a question that we should all ask ourselves. It's a question that we should all ask ourselves. Even if we've been going to church for years, even if we've been baptized, even if we're a church member, because if in reality all we've actually had is an external kind of makeover, a spiritual external makeover, where our exterior behavior changes a little bit and it becomes a little bit Christian, but if if that's all that's really happened to us, instead of a, a really internal, complete change on the inside, then actually we won't have changed in the way that God demands us us to change. We won't have changed in the way that makes it possible for us to have an eternal relationship with God. If, like on Extreme Makeover Home Edition, we've had a total rebuild from the ground up, then we've got that complete assurance of God that we've been accepted by God and we will be with him for all eternity. And that's because it's God who's changed us. We've not just kind of made a few exterior changes in our kind of superficial behavior on the surface of our lives. Now, last week, Matt was speaking on the first six verses of Hebrews chapter 3, which are all about the idea that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus and surrender our lives to him, we become part of God's family. And instead of using the idea or or a picture of a family, in Hebrews 3, the writer uses the idea of it being like a house. When we trust in Jesus, we become part of God's house. It's kind of a picture that he's using. Each one of us are kind of like individual bricks or individual stones. And as we come together, as each one of us trusts in Jesus and as we come together, we kind of form like a spiritual house where God can live. Okay, So each one of us join God's family or we become part of God's house. It's another way of describing the church. It's another way of describing churches, God's house. Not a physical building, but a spiritual collection of people who are, who've been changed and are together form God's house. And verse 3 of chapter 3 that Matt looked at last week talks about Jesus being the builder of this house. Okay, It's Jesus who makes this house. It's because of what Jesus did on the cross when he died there and was punished in our place so that if we put our faith and trust in him, we can have our sins forgiven and we can have a right relationship with God. It's because of what Jesus did that the house can be built. It's Jesus who is the builder of this house, of this family, of his people, gathering all his people together. So Jesus is the builder of the house, if you like, that belongs to God. It's because of what Jesus has done on the cross that we can become part of God's house, that we can become part of God's family. But the very last verse that Matt looked at last week gives us a bit of a condition. Not everybody that thinks that they're part of God's house necessarily is. It's possible to think that you're a Christian. You might even behave like a Christian. It's possible to think that you've trusted in Jesus, to think that you're part of God's house or God's family, when actually you're not. Verse 6 says this, And we are his house if, this is this massive if, if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So how do we know if we're really God's house? How do we know if we're really part of God's family? How do we know we've really trusted in Jesus and are one of his family? The writer says here, if we hold on to the courage and the hope of which we boast. In other words, if a person has truly trusted in Jesus, they will keep on trusting in Jesus right to the end of their life or until Jesus comes again. But if a person says, yeah, I've trusted in Jesus, and then a few years later is no longer holding on to Jesus, no longer holding on to that that courage that they had in Jesus and that hope, the trust that they've put in Jesus, then there's a distinct possibility, a high likelihood, that they never really trusted in Jesus in the first place. They said they did, perhaps they thought they did, 
But now they've given up on Jesus and they're no longer trusting in him. And according to the Bible, those that genuinely trust in Jesus will keep on trusting him. They might wander, they might go off for a few years into the kind of desert a little bit, but eventually they will come back at some point. Those who genuinely have trusted in Jesus will keep on trusting in him and will keep on living for him right up until the end of their life or until Jesus comes again, whichever happens to be first. And today's passage, which is Hebrews 3, verses 6 through to chapter 4, verse 2, teaches us about this. And it's a really, really important subject. So we're going to read that passage now. You can just listen as I read the verses or if you want to read along with me, um, you can find it in the Bible. So it's Hebrews chapter 3 and we're going to pick up the last verse that Matt looked at last week. And then read down to verse 2 of chapter 4. This is what the, the writer of the book of Hebrews says. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. During the time of testing in the desert. Where your fathers tested and tried me. And for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and, rebe and rebelled? Were, not, were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So this passage deals with something that theologians call the perseverance of the saints. Now saints are just how the Bible describes people who've trusted in Jesus. So if you put your faith and trust in Jesus this morning, you are a saint. A saint simply means a holy one, okay? So if you've trusted in Jesus, you are a saint. Saints aren't special people as such. We're all special now if we've trusted in Jesus. So you are a saint. And this doctrine is called the perseverance of the saints. And it simply means this. The perseverance of the saints means that all who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. Let me read that again and just, just read that carefully and look at those words. The perseverance of the saints, this doctrine, means that all who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. And so the author of this passage was saying that the proof that somebody's been born again and has become part of God's house, as it were, is whether or not they continue right until the end following and trusting in Jesus, whether they persevere to the end. That's how we know, ultimately, if somebody is truly saved, truly born again, truly part of God's house, part of God's family. It's only true if they continue 
to have faith in Jesus and continue to believe the gospel right up until the end. They might have ups and downs. They'll let God down occasionally. They'll sometimes mess up. They might wander off into the desert for, for days, months, sometimes years. But ultimately, they will come back and they will live for Jesus if they have been genuinely uh, saved. If we've been genuinely born again, we can't lose our salvation. We will be those who continue in our faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope of the gospel. But the person who doesn't continue, who maybe you know, for a year or two lives as a Christian and then turns their back on Jesus and, and perhaps drifts away in some way or other in their belief or in their lifestyle, if they don't continue to the end, if they don't come back at some point in their life, was never really born again in the first place. Verse 6 tells us that we are only his house, his family, part of his people, if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. In other words, that this profession of faith that we have in Jesus. It's possible for us to think that we're Christians, to think we're part of God's family, to think that we're part of God's house, but then when the situations of life come along and, and they test us, and, and difficult situations come along, those who haven't trusted in Jesus will then turn away from him. And when that happens, it's because the person had never really trusted in Jesus in the first place. They might have thought they did. They might have said a prayer in a church service. They might have been baptized. They might have become a church member. They might even be serving on church rotors. But when their lives are tested by difficult situations and by temptations, they sadly turn away from Jesus and they stop living for him. And the author of Hebrews is well aware that some of the people he's writing to might be exactly like this. They might think that they're part of God's house. They might think they, they're Christians because they said a prayer at some kind of service or whatever. But actually, they've never truly been born again. So he writes this really strong warning to them to try and kind of jolt them and make them think. He doesn't want anybody to think that they're part of God's house when they're not. It'd be tragic, wouldn't it, if somebody thought they were a believer when actually they weren't really a believer. And to illustrate and teach this, the author reminds the people he was writing to who were Jews that had become Christians, he reminds them about their ancestors from 1,400 years earlier. And he quotes from Psalm 95 in the Old Testament of the Bible. And Rachel read the first half of that psalm. The second half of it is quoted in this passage that we've just looked at. God had led the people of Israel out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt, and he'd led them out of Israel using Moses, his servant. They were out of slavery, and they'd come out of Egypt 1444 BC and this is what he says in Psalm 95 talking about that period of history so as the Holy Spirit says today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did that is why I was angry with that generation and I said their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways so I declared on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest God had led the people of Israel out of Egypt. He rescued them for slavery, and they were, they were so happy. They were happy to celebrate and to follow Moses at first. But then when life got tough, they began to rebel against Moses and rebel against God. They even said they wanted to go back to Egypt. Despite seeing God free them from slavery, part the Red Sea, give them dry ground to walk through on, and miraculously feed them day after day for 40 years with bread from heaven, when life got tough... They then turned away from God. They rebelled against him and they didn't want to know. And verse 16 says this, Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? They'd heard God speak, they'd seen God act in amazing ways, 
And at first it seemed like they were genuine, it seemed like they were really trusting in God, but then they rebelled. And as a consequence, God said that none of them, none of that generation except for two, Joshua and Caleb, would be able to go into the rest that God was promising them, the special promised land, the land of Israel that he was leading them to. They started out well, they looked like the real deal, but then when temptations and troubles came along, they turned away from God. And as a result, they lost out on what God had promised them, all except for two men who were faithful, Joshua and Caleb. Verse 19 says, so we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. They couldn't enter the promised land because they could, and they couldn't enjoy God's rest because of their unbelief. And this is the author's really big fear. He's really concerned that some of the people in the churches that would be receiving this book, this letter, the book of Hebrews, he's really concerned that some of them might be just like their, their ancestors 1,400 years earlier. He's really worried that there might be people in those congregations who said they've trusted in Jesus. They kind of started out well, but then, and, and they think they're part of God's house, part of God's family. But then when persecution starts from other Jews who haven't become Christians, they actually kind of melt away and they turn away and they go back to where they used to be. Their hearts are hard. They've never really trusted in Jesus. They might think they have, but the events of their lives prove otherwise and demonstrate otherwise. All they've really had is a kind of an external makeover. They, they maybe said a prayer, they might have been baptized, they might be coming along to church, but they haven't had that complete makeover, that complete rebuild from the ground up that we need God to do in our lives, rather than just kind of some external uh, altering of behavior on the outside. Because when temptations and troubles and, 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 and problems come along, they'll completely turn their backs on Jesus. And so he says in verse 12, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. This morning, you might think that you're part of God's house, God's family, but actually, you might still have that sinful, unbelieving heart, a heart that turns away from life when things get tough, a, a heart that turns away from God, rather, when life gets tough. And he repeats what he said about persevering until the end in verse 14. He says, we've come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. We've come to share in Christ. In other words, we've, we've come to share in all the blessings that trusting in Jesus brings of forgiveness and eternal life and a relationship with God. We've come to share in Christ in all those things. How do we know if we've done that? Well, if we hold firmly to the end, to the end of our lives or until Jesus comes, the confidence that we first had, that confidence that we first professed when we said, I'm trusting in Jesus. So how do we know we're sharing in Christ and, and sharing in all that he's done for us? How do we know that we've been brought into God's house or or God's family by Jesus? Well, it's if we hold firmly to the end that confidence that we had when we started out. A person's life and actions ultimately will demonstrate whether or not they, the claim that they make to have trusted in Jesus is authentic and genuine. It would be awful, wouldn't it? Absolutely awful if somebody thought they were a Christian but actually wasn't. How terrible would that be to be living under the kind of delusion of that or the misapprehension of that? And that's why he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, right now, while this moment is here, if you hear God's voice, God is speaking to you about this very issue. Do not harden your hearts. People of Israel heard God's voice, but they hardened their hearts. They chose to ignore God, and they rejected him, and they, and they turned away from him. And that's the cry of the author here in verse 15. He says, today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. And it's the message that each one of us need to hear this morning and challenge our own hearts about this morning. If God is speaking to you this morning about anything, but specifically about this issue that we're looking at this morning, don't harden your heart. 
Don't just kind of turn away. Don't harden your heart. Don't ignore what God is saying to you. You might have been coming along. You might have said a prayer in Sunday school as a child. You might have said a prayer uh, that you wanted to become a Christian at, at camp. You might have been through Christianity Explored and, and prayed that prayer of commitment at the end. You might have been baptized. You might even be a church member. You might be serving on some of the church rotors. But it may be that actually all you've really had is kind of an external makeover. You've not really genuinely been born again. You've just gone through the motions of some external stuff. And it may be that you've never trusted in Jesus and, and then when life gets tough and then when temptations come along and, and pressures come along, you'll find yourself turning away from Jesus. It's the, the, the parable of the sower that Jesus talks about. When the, the, when the weeds come up and suddenly then the, the good seed gets choked and all the, the deceits of life and so on. But it doesn't have to be that way because if God is speaking to you today and you think, yeah, that is me. I, I, I thought I was a Christian. I, I did say that prayer, but you know, really, I don't think I really meant it. I don't really think I've ever been truly born again. If that, if that is you, then it's never too late to put that right. Today is the day. If you're hearing God speak to you, then today is the day to respond and do something about that. Not tomorrow, today, because today only lasts for today. And your opportunity to respond to that may run out at the end of today. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. And just as the people of Israel had the promise of entering God's rest, of, of going into the promised land, so God's promise to us of eternal life, of a relationship with him, of forgiveness, that promise still stands. So let's make sure we've really accepted it. Verse 2 says, For we also have had the gospel, the good news, preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. As you hear the gospel, the good news that Jesus loves you, that Jesus died for you, that Jesus paid the punishment for your sins there on the cross so that you can have forgiveness, you can have a relationship with him, you can have eternal life. We need to combine hearing that message with actual faith. It's not good enough just to hear it and to know about it. We need to combine the hearing with faith. So the big question this passage asks us this morning and is, is asking of us is this, am I truly a believer in Jesus? Have I really been born again? Am I really part of God's house, as, as he uses this kind of picture in Hebrews 3? Am I really part of God's family? Is this really who I am? Wouldn't it be awful if we thought we were just because we'd maybe said a prayer or, or we'd, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd gone to camp or we'd been baptized, but actually we'd never really trusted in Jesus? That would be tragic, wouldn't it? Let's just pause for a moment and ask ourselves that question. Am I truly a believer in Jesus? Have I really been born again? question that we need to ask ourselves is like, yeah well yeah I was I was christened as a kid or I was baptized or I you know I've, I've said a prayer I I've did Christianity explored that's great but none of that actually makes you a Christian have you genuinely put your faith and trust in Jesus so how do we know then how do we know if we're really genuinely true believers in Jesus how do we know that we're really part of God's house well part of it is that are we, are we persevering? Are we continuing in our faith, in that courage and hope that we first professed? But I put up uh, on the screen and also on your outlines five things that are a really helpful way of testing our own claims that we're born again. 
Okay, and these are all based on various parts of the Bible. Five questions that we can ask ourselves, and this will really just kind of tease out, am I truly a believer or am I not? Have I just been perhaps kidding myself or have I been misled or have I been pretending something that's not really true of me? Number one, we will have a love for God. If we're genuinely born again, we will love God and all that that entails. Do I love God? Is bringing God glory a goal of my life? Does that matter to me to some degree or other? Do I seek to live for God? We're not always going to live all the way, all the time like we should do. That's not what I'm talking about. But is that our heart's desire? I, will, I love God and I want to love him more and I want to live for him. That's the first question to ask of ourselves. Number two, we will be living in an ongoing state of repentance and have a hatred of sin. Now, there's no forgiveness, according to the Bible, without repentance. We can't have our sins forgiven unless we repent. And repentance is a change of mind and a change of direction. It's about turning away from our sin, and it's about turning away from our sinful way of living and seeking to live God's way instead. But not only do we need to repent of our sinful state and of any known sins when we first trust in Jesus, repentance repentance of faith is meant to be a daily experience, a daily thing that we engage in. We need to live in that ongoing state of repentance. When, whenever we become aware of sinful actions or sinful thoughts, if somebody kind of highlights that to us or our, or our circumstances highlight to us or we really feel God speaking to us and convicting us or as we read the Bible, as we become aware of those sins, we need to repent of them, confess them, turn away from them again afresh. We need to name them for what they are, sin, and therefore turn away from them and, 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 and kind of name them before God as what they really are. And that's something that we need to keep on doing, not so that we keep on being forgiven. Once you trust in Jesus, you are forgiven past, present, and future. But the mark of a true believer will be an ongoing desire to turn away from sin and to turn to God in faith and live his way. So as soon as we become aware of sin, we need to name that, we need to deal with that, we need to turn away from it. Number three, we'll have a hunger for and an acceptance of God's word. A hunger for and an acceptance for God's word, the Bible. The true believer in Jesus will want to read their Bible. Now, don't get me wrong, we're not always going to want to spend all, the t- all our time in the Bible, but there should at least be some desire in us, some interest in us to want to read the Bible, to embrace what we read in it, and to want to seek to live according to what we're reading. If we have no interest in the Bible, if we're never reading the Bible, and if when we read it, it leaves us cold, that's a question as to... Am I really a believer in Jesus? Number four, we will become more like Jesus. Jesus said that his followers would be known by their fruit. In other words, by their lifestyle and by their actions. Just as an apple tree is only an apple tree if it produces apples, so we are known by our fruit. Our fruit is Christ-like behavior. And ultimately, people will know that we are Jesus' disciples. We'll know that we're Jesus' disciples if our lives begin to look more and more like Jesus. It doesn't mean we become instantly like Jesus overnight and we'll never be perfectly truly like Jesus anyway this side of heaven but there should be a kind of upwards and to the right there might be bad days and good days and bad but over time we should be seeing our lives increasingly conformed to being more and more like Jesus it should be clear to ourselves and it should be clear to people around us that we are different that we are on a kind of upward trajectory to becoming more like Jesus and then number five we'll be telling other people about Jesus followers of Jesus will try to help other people also become followers of Jesus now, that, again, doesn't mean that we're out there every day telling everybody about Jesus, but there should at least be a desire in our hearts. I need to tell this person about Jesus. I'm not very good at it. I keep making a mess of it, but I do want to share this good news with those around me. 
Now, we could expand on all of these, but these are five helpful categories in which there should be some clear outcomes if we've been truly born again. So here's a challenge for you this morning. Are you born again? Are these five things true of you to some degree or other? They could always be true of us more than they are probably, but are they true of us? Are you born again? Are you part of God's house? Are you part of God's family? It's possible to have been coming here for five months, five years. You might have been coming here for 50 years. You might be baptized. You might be a church member, but you've never truly been born again. Wouldn't it be tragic if we thought we were a Christian just because we'd kind of gone through some ritual, we'd said a prayer at the end of a service or in Sunday school or something. Maybe we've been christened or, or baptized or we've got Christian parents or we've done Christianity Explored or Alpha or something or, or because well, I've just always come to region. But in fact, we've never been truly born again. And, and five questions which will really help tease that out are those ones that we've looked at this morning. Can I encourage you to examine your life and look at those five questions as they'll really help answer that question? And if you haven't been born again, then you need to be. The right response this morning is, well, if that's not me, even if I thought I was for the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, whatever, then I need to do something about it. Today is the day to do something about it. Not tomorrow, not, oh, maybe I'll think about it. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to respond. And don't harden our hearts any further. And if that's something you want to do, and maybe, maybe you've been even in a prominent role in this church, but you know you haven't trusted in Jesus, then come and speak to me afterwards. I'd love to share with you and just help you and lead you in that process of genuinely, truly putting your faith and trust in Jesus. But if you have done that, if you are continuing in the faith, established and firm, not moved from that hope that you first professed maybe five weeks ago or five years ago or 50 years ago, and if you've got the the, the fruit in your life to some degree or other to show that, then praise God that he has saved you. Give thanks that God has saved you, not because of anything you've done, not because you're good or, or whatever, but because of his grace, that he has chosen to save you. And praise God that you're secure and you're safe in his hands, that your ongoing salvation doesn't depend on how good you are or how much you feel like serving Jesus today. You are safe and secure in the hands of Jesus. Jesus said, I will lose none that the Father has given me. No one can pluck them out of my hands. Praise God that you are safe and secure in his hands if you have genuinely trusted in him. But this passage also teaches those of us who are certain that we are true believers in Jesus to look around us for those who think they are but might actually not be. Verse 13 says, But encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. In other words, time is short. Encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. As those who belong to God's house, God's family, we should all be looking out for each other, not in a kind of interfering, judgmental, busybody way, but we should be especially concerned with each other's spiritual welfare. If as we interact with each other, whether that's on a Sunday morning or in our home groups or in the different ministry teams that we might be involved with, if we begin to be concerned about uh, someone else that we're interacting with, if we, if we begin to be concerned about their spiritual welfare, and maybe I'm not even sure if this person is genuinely saved, then we need to encourage them. We need to speak into their lives and encourage them and challenge them. And there's a way to do that, and there's a, there's not a, there's, there's a bad way to do that, and there's a good way to do it. We don't want to kind of rush in in a judgmental way. We need to be gracious and gentle, but we do need to do it. Wouldn't it be terrible if we thought the person maybe sitting next to us or in our home group or that we serve with in, in church 
wasn't really a true believer based on our observations of their lives, but then we did nothing about it. We just kind of glossed over it because it's easier just to gloss over it. Inconvenient to ask those hard questions. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my heroes, that the German church leader of the 1930s that the Nazis ended up executing in the Second World War, he said this, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. Let me repeat that. Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. The easy option is always to overlook sinful behavior. Let's just gloss over that. It's just easier. We'll pretend it's not there. We'll pretend it's not happening. It's always easier for us, isn't it? Absolutely. And certainly as one of the elders, that's an easy choice for me. It's an easy choice for us as elders. We do not enjoy kind of speaking into people's lives and challenge them. It's not something we enjoy. And if somebody enjoys that, then there's probably something wrong with them. The easy option, though, is just to overlook things and ignore things. But how tragic it would be if we weren't speaking into someone's life and weren't calling them back from that path of sin, maybe of ultimately unbelief itself. So write this down. We need to be ready to challenge others about their spiritual life. We need to be ready to challenge those around us about their spiritual life. That is not an easy thing to do. It's a difficult thing to do. It's a challenging thing to do. But it's something that we should do. We need to do that. We need to be ready to do that. Whether that's about a person's salvation, ultimately, obviously the most important thing, or whether it's perhaps just about more general aspects of their behavior or their general lifestyle. I've certainly really benefited over the years myself from people gently and graciously, sometimes not so gently or graciously, but generally gently and graciously putting an arm around me and just challenging me about things I've said or my behavior or actions and calling me back from a path that is unhelpful and ungodly. We need to be ready to do that with each other and speak into one another's lives. So let's land this this morning. Are you really a Christian? Are you part of God's house? Is that something that is genuinely true of you? If you're not, then now is the time to do something about that today. Do something about it today while it's still today. If you are a Christian, that's fantastic. And those five marks of a true believer are are, are true to some degree or other of you. Then praise God for his grace and his mercy in saving you and giving you his spirit as that seal that guarantees your inheritance, that your life is his And so keep going, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Keep persevering right until the end, until your race is complete, until the life that the Bible describes as being like a marathon race, until it's complete, until we cross the finishing line and see Jesus face to face. I'm going to pray, and the band are going to come and lead us in one final song. But if you want to talk about anything I I said this morning, if you don't agree with what I've said, or you want to kind of discuss it further, or if, most importantly of all, you think, actually, yeah, I, I've never truly trusted in Jesus. Then let's, let's, let's talk about that this morning. I'd be delighted to share with you afterwards, be delighted to chat with you afterwards and to discuss that further. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you sent the Lord Jesus to come and die for us on the cross to build your house, to build your people, to build your family, the church. Thank you that we can become part of your house, become part of your family through faith and repentance. 
Father, thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you that we get to share in Jesus in, and in all that the Lord Jesus has made possible for us in eternal life, in a relationship with you, in being declared holy and righteous because of Jesus. Thank you that Jesus has built this house. Father, I pray this morning that if there's anybody here who's not part of that house, maybe hearing this for the first time or maybe thinking they were but realizing they're not, Lord, would you help them, I pray this morning, to take that step to give their lives to you. And help each one of us, Father, to look out for one another and speak into one another's lives. Father, wherever we're at this morning, we just want to be more like Jesus. We want to follow you more. We want to dig in closer and just move closer to you. Help us to do that and to be that this week and through the rest of our lives, we pray. So, Father, we worship you. We pray that you would uh, give us the, the strength and the power and the determination to persevere, to keep running the race right until the finishing line. We thank you that one day we will see Jesus face to face, whether that's through dying and going to be with you or whether that's when we see you come again and call us up to meet you in the air. We long for that day. And so we say, as the Bible says, even so come, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.